Good morning, church. How are you? I missed you last week. Did you miss me? Be honest. Okay, you didn't. Did you miss me? Lie to me. Sorry, don't do See, I baited you into that, and then it was pathetic either way. I'm grateful to be here. I, I will say that we did enjoy our time away, uh, being able to celebrate our anniversary. 27 great years that Marla's put up with me. That's a pretty amazing feat. Yeah. So uh, she's an amazing woman to be able to put up with the likes of me. It's all I got to say. Um, and by God's grace, we'll see another 27. Who knows, 50 years after this, we'll be old and shriveled and gray. And, and I'll be walking up here with a, with a cane and I don't know. I'm just, I, I'm, not, I'm not prophesying. I'm just saying that might happen because I don't think I'm going to let go of this thing for very long. Uh, so let's get into God's word, shall we? Are we good for that? God's word? All right, we're going to be in Revelation 3, 14 through 22. That's our main passage. Only have a couple supporting passages outside of this. And what we've, what we've done is now we're in week seven of our series called Faded. We've made our way around the mail route of which John would have sent a letter as these letters or letter, whether it was seven individual letters or one long letter with uh, one writing with all seven letters on it. We're not really sure. But what we do know is Jesus had written this very personalized letters, these very personalized letters to these seven churches. And John is has been exiled on the island of Patmos, and now the, the letters are going out, and we know that the first place that they had uh, been dropped off is Ephesus, and they've made their way around, and now we get to the church in Laodicea, which is the church that most likely you've heard the most about, and you've also probably heard the most about it as not being a great place, or certainly not a great place to be from or to be associated with, and we're going to find out why after we Read God's word and then to see what God has for us. So here we go. Verse 14 says this to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Verse 19, those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's go to our Lord and ask him to reveal to us what it is that we need for this passage because, because we have some history, most of us have some history and understanding and some familiarity with what's going on in the church in Laodicea, our tendency is, in moments like this, is to distance ourselves from God's Word. But yet, we, what we need is we need God to not create... Her. We don't need distance between us and God. We need to be close to it so the Spirit of God can speak into us, encourage, and also correct what needs to be corrected within us. So let's pray and ask the Lord just to do that. Uh, Father, we come to you, and we just come to you in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are desperate for your spirit. 
Lord, we have just declared your word. We've declared these, these praises and we just worship back to you in singing. And Lord, now we just continue on in the, the act of worship. And Lord, just as, as that song had said, just coming back to the heart of worship, Lord, we want to come back to you. We want to be close to you. And we're desperate for you. So Lord, we plead and we ask and, and I intercede on behalf of everybody who's listening, whether in the room or outside of this room, God, that you would bring your word to life in our hearts, that you would reveal to us the warmth of your love and then also maybe the necessity for repentance and that we would that we would be willing to hear a rebuke if there's one to be had so that we can indeed repent and that we can be the sons and daughters of Almighty God. We pray it in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So what we see is now we're going to kind of get a picture here of the the map if you will, we've shared this multiple times, but now, again, we started at Ephesus, and now we're making our way down to the church in Laodicea, the lukewarm church. So that's where we started in Ephesus, and if you notice here, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, I apologize, the first couple things are off the screen, but I just want you to notice something that is, is really interesting about the writing and the way that Jesus inspired this writing to go from John to these churches. The harshest rebukes happened to the first church and the last church being mentioned. The harshest rebuke happens with the church in Ephesus who had lost their first love. And also another harsh uh, rebuke happens here in the church in Laodicea that is lukewarm. They're indifferent to God, to the things of God. They're going through the motions spiritually, but yet there's an absence of the spirit in their life. What's really interesting, too, if you look and do a little bit deeper dive, now we're still looking at the map. The second church, the church in Smyrna, and the church last week, Philadelphia, those are the only two churches who actually didn't get a correction. So one in seven get the harshest correction, and then uh, two in six, they get no correction. I, I don't think that that's an accident. I think that's just Obviously, something there that God has in, in some of the mysteries of God's word and just the, the way that it was delivered to this group of people. So now we've looked at, at the church of Laodicea, and I want us to, to see this maybe in a little different light. But I want to ask you this question. Who has a hobby? Who has a hobby? All right, that's good. Who, who sometimes allows that hobby, who, who sometimes allows that hobby to interfere with adulting, right? Just doing the things we ought to do. Oh, no hands go up for that one, right? We're going to have an opportunity before we take the Lord's Supper to repent of that just in case that need happen. Uh, I don't know, maybe. But uh, I think it's really easy that if we have a hobby and hobbies are good. Now, how many, how many people don't have a hobby and they're like, I really wish I had a hobby? I, I knew there'd be a few. Like hobbies are good. Hobbies also can take control of our lives if we don't allow it to. And hobbies can get in the way of us doing the things that we need to do. When we were in college, Marla and I were in college at the same time, and also raising our son at the same time, and also working at the same time, we're gluttons for punishment at the same time too. Like that whole journey was very difficult. But one of the things that I did was I played a lot of golf. Now I played an obsessive amount of golf. I was never good at golf, but I just played a lot of golf. And so I was obsessive to the point where I would play golf, literally, I would play golf before I would go to go start classes at 8 o'clock. I, I was sharing this with a friend recently. 
Uh, I would literally call the golf course, and they knew me by name. So I would call the golf course, and then I would ask him, hey, I want to go out, and I want to go out and play some golf, but I need to get to school. Would I be able to start when the sun comes up? So we would, my buddy Art and I, we would leave the college. I'd pick him up. He didn't have a car, typical college student. I'd pick up Art, and it would be pitch black outside, and then we would show up at the golf course before the golf course was open. So just before first light, we could tee off on hole number one. The only way that would happen is they actually allowed us to have a cart. So I asked them to put out a cart. So they put out a cart for me, and I would pay at the end. That, I mean, that's a little obsessive, but it was even more so than that. I had a one-hour lunch break in between my college, and I, uh, it was amazing that the college, my college, most of my college was at the airport because of my degree plan, but it was really close to the golf course. So I would scarf down some tuna and some chips on my way to chip and putt over my lunch hour, and then I would get in the car, and then I would scramble in the car, and then I would go back into class, but I would be dreaming about golf all through this time, kind of mumbling, bumbling. School would get out at 5 o'clock. I would eat something, and then I would spend most evenings chipping and putting in my yard. I was obsessed. You know, I had other things that I should have been doing, and yet I was consumed with all of that and just with golf, and I was reading the magazine, and I'm, I'm studying my swing as if I had one. You know, I'm like spending way too much money on a hobby. And, and for me, the reason why I even share that is that was an incredible blind spot in my life. I didn't have anyone around me saying, hey, I think it's a problem. At that time, sadly, I, I wasn't following Jesus. So if you were to recognize me then and now, you would see a completely different person. But I, I had a, these incredible blind spots and it got in the way. Truthfully, it got in the way of our marriage. It got in the way of, of the father that I was supposed to be, and I am sure that I could have done better in school if I had devoted some more of those hours in studying. But I made it through by God's grace and the skin of my teeth. We all have blind spots. The church in Laodicea had an incredible blind spot, not just as an individual, but as the whole church. They were missing it, but they didn't even see that they were missing it because they were caught up in doing all of the little religious things. They were caught, in, uh, caught up in all the religious trappings, but yet they didn't have this deep connection, abiding connection with Jesus. So now as we cycle around, uh, back now to Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. What we see is the church, that Jesus sends this letter to the church, and he marks this letter like he marks every other letter, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. So now let's talk about the city that's mentioned. The city that's mentioned is, again, the city of Laodicea. And one of the reasons why I think that the church in Laodicea is so familiar to us is because it's so striking, the, the, just the verbiage and what Jesus is talking about, about, you know, they're lukewarm and I'll spit you out of my mouth. Like that is such a visual and yet a real thing that I think most of us kind of gravitate towards that and we're like, okay, there's something shocking there, but I'm not really sure what it is. We're going to see that this isn't just some, some nifty way of Jesus conveying a message. We're going to see that ultimately Jesus has a message that is fine-tuned for that group of people. The city of Laodicea was a center for wealth. The same earthquake that Ben talked about last week, heard a lot of great things about Ben's message from last week. The same earthquake that, that impacted the church in Philadelphia is the same 
it's the same earthquake that dramatically impacted the church in the city in Laodicea in A.D. 60. And what we know, and history records this even outside of the Bible, that the, that the people of Laodicea were so prideful that they didn't even want any outside help when the earthquake, earthquake came. They only wanted to rebuild themselves. So even when the imperials, the Romans, would have been able to offer up funds to help them recover, they're like, no, we've got it. This is captured actually by Tacitus, the Roman historian. He says this, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources with no help from us. So they were proud people. They were proud that they, they were so proud that, that, that they didn't even want to ask for help. Oh, church, if you, if you as an individual are so prideful that you are unwilling to ask for help, you're in a dangerous place. The church in Laodicea was in a dangerous place. It was also a center for fashion. It was one of the, the richest commercial centers of the known world at the time. And they were noted for their banking like some of the other churches. And they were also known for manufacturing of clothing, which is very similar to some of the other churches too. However, they were known as, and they, they became very wealthy because they had this, this black wool. And it was a shiny black wool that was only developed there. So it was local to them. So if you wanted this, this specialty, black wool, you had to get it from this area. And, and people wanted it. So now the city of Laodicea is very wealthy. They're very prideful. They have this, uh, now they, because of the textiles and because of this black wool, they like what they're, they're getting. And this is only puffing them up all the more. They're also a center for commerce. It was a commercial center because of some of the textiles and because of the black wool. And also just because of the, it was a financial hub. But also, and this will we'll draw a connection to this in verse 18, they had a, a popular eye salve that was developed in this area. They were experts in optometry. Being able to care for the eyes and vision. Like other cities... They were mentioned in the region in a name that I'm going to dare to say, Asclepius. I said it again. Uh, I didn't say it to this service, actually, on that, that given week that I brought that up. But this was one of the common false gods at the time, the god of Asclepius. Remember when I talked about that and I showed the medical symbol, and that was, the, that was paying homage to the, to the god of Asclepius. And so this was very common also in this area. They had a, they had a, a center for optometry that was actually connected to the temple dedicated to Asclepius, this false god. And this was a very famous medical school. It was also the center of medicine because of that eye salve that was known to help heal people. Don't really know a lot about that. We just know that there was an eye salve that was there. It was also a center for entertainment. It was the It City. It, was the, it would have been the city that any of the, the kids, if they'd have heard about any stories that was happening in Laodicea, uh, that any, any city that, that would have been like our city, where people just long to leave our city to go to where they think some, the, the offerings of a big city, that would be the it city. Laodicea is the it city that people would long to go to. So all the other little smaller village kids, they would have heard about Laodicea and said, I really hope I get to go to Laodicea. 
So they loved to go there. People were proud of being from there. One of the problems with this city, with all the trappings and all the economics and all the wealth that was coming in and, and, the, and the black wool that was known for that area and the ISAF and the medical school, all of these things, one of the big issues they had was a poor water supply. And this is foundational to understand Jesus' teachings. The main water supply came from an aqueduct. I have a picture of an aqueduct. That's what an aqueduct would have looked like. I've had the opportunity, actually, now many years, whenever I was in the service, and took a tour. Tour cost me $15, best $15 I've ever spent. I've wasted a lot of $15 playing golf, but this was $15 well spent to take this tour of the Holy Land that I got to spend a day. And I got to see some aqueducts that look a lot like this. This would have been all over the Roman Empire. This was one of the the great inventions of the Roman Empire. So they would have these aqueducts, and again, as you see the arches there, and the water would have flown on the top, and it would have been in these type of just technology and things that they would made, so the water would flow. Of course, there's no pump, so it would have to be uh, fed by gravity. So aqueducts were something that the city of Laodicea would have to use to get water into it because of the poor water supply. Also... And now I want to mention three different cities, and these are all connected. Laodicea is in the middle. I want to mention one area or one city, really a mountain, Colossae. An easy way for you to remember this is C-H-L. C is the church in Colossae known for cold springs. This is important. Hierapolis was to the north, and they were known for hot springs. C, cold, H, hot. And Laodicea is in the middle. It's in the middle. So this is what the hot springs in Hierapolis would look like. This is a a more modern picture. Looks luxurious. From a distance, what you'd be able to see then and now, because this has gone on now for thousands of years, of course, at the top of of Hierapolis, you'd be able to see this. And also, you see the, the mineral deposits, the white mineral deposits, and that's travertine. It's still used today. But look how beautiful that water is. And the reason why it's that milky white is because it's filled with travertine. This would have been the water supply for the people in Laodicea. So now they would have used this water and they would have used an aqueduct to go from these springs in Heropolis and it would have flowed down to Laodicea. Poor water supply. And it was water that would have these types of elements in it and then By the time it would get to Laodicea, everybody knew that there was a very poor water supply and that just water itself was not very good. What's really shocking to me, and now we're going to see this when we get into the passage all the more, is Laodicea is in the middle. So I, I want you to think about this, not from the perspective or maybe what you've even heard, but I want you to think about if you lived in the city of Laodicea or if you were a church in the middle of Laodicea, from one direction, you could look over and you could look over to Colossae because there was a mountain there and it was Mount Cadmus that had a snow-capped mountain that was cold. It had cold water and it was refreshing water. And that would be off to one side, and then you'd look off to the other side, and that would be the area of Heropolis, which also you could see from a distance because of the, because of the, the piles of travertine. Uh, both of them would look white. And yet you have 
Laodicea, the prideful church and city in Laodicea, between two different areas. Mount Cadmus' water was cold and refreshing. In Heropolis, the hot springs would be soothing and it would be known and used for medical purposes. Let's go back into our passage. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either, that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus identifies himself once again in a unique way. He says, I am the, the amen, I am the so be it, or it is done. And he says, and I am uh, the faithful and true witness. Why would he choose these words, faithful and true witness? Because the church in Laodicea was neither faithful or true in their message. So Jesus, now he goes and he's addressing this church uh, again with the, his own attributes, and he says, I'm the faithful and true one. Notice how the passage continues. He says, in the ruler of God's creation, the ruler. The word ruler is archi. It's the same base that we get archetype. And that word simply means ruler, source, or origin. So ruler, the archi, it combines the thoughts that Christ is the supreme authority over creation, and he also has an origin in its beginning. So Jesus is, is saying now to this church and to us, I am faithful and true, I am the amen, and I'm the source of life. I'm the source of all life. So the church in Laodicea, the city of Laodicea, prideful, thinking that they don't need anyone or anything. And Jesus says, I am the source. The only reason you have what you have is because Jesus has given it to us. Oh, church, red-blooded Americans, if we could simply get this truth, that we could get outside of ourselves, if we could get outside of our rugged individualism and our thoughts and beliefs that we are self-sufficient and we don't need anyone and or God, if we could get outside of this, we would see revival in our day. If we would get outside of this and realize that Jesus is the arche, He is the ruler, He is the source, He is the authority, and we would simply get to a place that, that Jesus is calling the church and layout to see, to, see a, to repent. And we wouldn't be clamoring around having and hoping that everybody else would change and hoping a political figure would change and hoping our culture would change. Simply, we would embrace individual change. How about that? How about let's try that on for size? That we embrace individual change and allow the Holy Spirit to ooze and flow from us and then see our families changed and see our workplaces changed and see our, our extended families changed and see our communities changed and then see... Our nation change. Instead of thinking the only way that we can change is by casting a ballot. Is it important to cast a ballot? Absolutely. 
I never miss the opportunity. But make no mistake, you can make more of a difference in your life individually than you can even in casting a ballot. Because if the Spirit of God is in you, there's more power that's available there than anywhere else. But if we would simply embrace this reality, if we would go back to and realize that we are not the origin of our lives, that Jesus is, He is the faithful, He is the true, He is the amen, He is the ruler. Notice what it says in verse 16. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. He says, now, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Well, why would he choose this wording? Again, what we've, what we've done is we've stood now in Laodicea and we've looked off to, to one side of Mount Cadmus where the, there's snow-capped mountains and it's beautiful, cold, refreshing water. And we've also looked up to Heropolis, which is our water supply, and that is hot springs. And it also is covered with a white substance of travertine. And now we know this because we live in Laodicea. The best water we can get is warm water because it's transcending or it's, it's being uh, sent, transferring, if you will, from a hot spring to us. So the best that we can get is, is lukewarm water. That's why Jesus chose these words. And with this understanding... You see, the the picture of the church is this. Jesus says, I wish you were either cold or hot. It's not because Jesus, it isn't because Jesus is saying, I just don't know where you stand. Trust me, Jesus knows where we stand. It's not a mystery to him. Your heart is a mystery to you many times, but it's not a mystery to him. What's going on in our world right now, it may seem like a mystery and it may seem confusing to you and it may seem chaotic to you, but it's not chaotic and it's not a mystery to Christ. So when Jesus would say this, he says, I wish you were either cold. In other words, what he's saying is, I wish you were cold because if you were even cold as a church, you'd be refreshing like the, like, like the, the water flowing from the snow-capped mountain of Mount Cadmus. He says you'd be cold and refreshing. At least you'd have some value of it as a church. And he says, or hot. He says, I wish you were either hot because even out of that, it's medicinal. And because of, of the travertine and all the minerals, it's like it was known as a place of healing. And people could get, they could get really the, the soothing help of hot springs, of which we still experience this all around the world today with the hot spring. And he says, I either wish you were cool and refreshing as a church, or I wish you were soothing and and warm and healing as a church. But he says, instead, you're useless as a church. You're you're not even a church. By today's definition, I don't even know if if that would even qualify as a church. Like, what's the point? That church is dead. They just don't even know it. So when he says lukewarm, the church in Laodicea, again, is reading this personally. Not just some nifty language from Jesus. He could do that, but he didn't. This gets into the correction that's needed in verse 15 when he lines out, I know your deeds, neither hot or cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Again, 
the hot water was medicinal and the cold water was refreshing and the church of Laodicea was neither. They were useless. That's what they were. This is the type of church that if it no longer existed, no one would care. That's this type of church. That's still the same type of church that we could be today, truthfully. It's the same type of church that I think is, is obvious all over the counties that we live. Churches that are simply holding on because of tradition or some sort of spiritual heritage, but maybe they haven't seen an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in decades. And the only thing to keep in them open is their bank account. This has been a challenging study for me because I don't know if there's any greater curse on earth than empty religion. I don't know if there's anything that's, that's harmed the message of Christianity any more than empty religion. I really don't. I don't know if there's anything that has harmed the, just the message of Christ more than empty, fallen, hollow, useless religion. I'll say it like this, and the reason why deep down lukewarm Christianity, even still today, is useless and worthless is because they have too much of the world to be happy in Jesus and too much of Jesus to be happy in the world. So they sit right in the middle. And they're happy, they're content, as long as they get what they want. How many churches have you been a part of and how many churches do you know of that have, have dissolved simply because people didn't get what they wanted? They would have been like this church. Churches still today, perhaps you, are lukewarm. But you're, you're content to absorb much of the world and you've got just enough of that. And you've got just enough Jesus to make you happy and content because you don't think you need to change. You see, in Laodicea, what they thought were strengths were actually weaknesses. What they thought were strengths were weaknesses. They thought, you know what? We're prideful people. We don't need anyone. I would say that they even got to the place where they didn't even think they needed God. They're thinking, we don't need anyone. They're living in such a way to, to where they're wealthy. They've got money. They've got stuff. They're in the it city. They're in the commercial center, the financial center. Everything they needed was right there. Why would they look up at God? Do you know I could say the same thing about the United States of America? We've got everything we need. Why would we need God? Oh, I could give you about a million reasons why we need God. Don't get me wrong. But this has to challenge us. Because here's the thing I know. If we just mumble and bumble through our spiritual life, and if we're lukewarm, you need to know it. If you're lukewarm in your faith and you're just going through the motions, you need to know it. 
As your pastor and somebody who loves you, it would be doing a disservice to your soul if I just allowed you to just kind of go through your life on your terms and avoid all the hardship that you want to avoid and avoid every, every bit of conflict that you want to avoid. I would be doing your soul a hardship if I ignored hard truths. I believe if someone is... They're operating as in lukewarm Christianity. I believe when that person prays, they're mocking God. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So a lukewarm Christian, they only pray prayers to be heard, or they only pray prayers that are simple prayers that are self-fulfilling prayers. Instead of asking for things in faith and boldly asking that God would bring about revival, that He would disrupt something in your own heart, in your own mind, in your way of thinking and living and breathing and, and in your church and in your community. You see, a lukewarm Christian only prays, they, they pray simple prayers that are self-sufficient, self-reliant prayers. That's lukewarm Christianity. But somebody who's growing in their faith, they are they're asking and they're desperate for Jesus to show up, for the Holy Spirit of God to have a, an outpouring. Oh, church, are you desperate for an outpouring of the Spirit? Are you? I mean, are you? Are you just happy with just, just ho-hum Christianity that is lukewarm? I am not content with lukewarm. I'm not, I'm not content with middle ground. I'm not content with status quo. I want the Holy Spirit of God to pour out in this place, even if it means that things look drastically different than they look right now. Why would I, why would I say that? Why would I live in that way? It's because I know that Jesus is the source. He is the ruler. He is supreme. Not me, not the elder board, not the president, not anyone who's elected, not a government structure. It is Jesus. That is the reason why I'm desperate to see change is because I'm, I'm okay with just saying Jesus is the source. He is the creator. He is the one. He is the all-sufficient one. And I need the Spirit of God that flowed through Him. I need it in my life, and I know that you need it in yours. And until we get to the point where we break through our stubborn pride, we will never, and you can quote me at this, we will never see significant spiritual change if pride has you captive, ever. Instead, we could falter. We could be like the church in Laodicea. We could be lukewarm. We could be looking at at another church, another group that's refreshing. We could be looking at another church who's offering healing. And we could sadly be in the middle and be lukewarm. You see, the church in Laodicea, what was so difficult, I think, for them to understand is this. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. Because... The church in Laodicea, they're in the middle of all of this 
but it is a complete blind spot to them. They can't see the mess that they're in the middle of. They can't see it. They're thinking, you know what? We live in a city. This is the it city. We're self-reliant. We're prideful. We're wealthy. What else could we have? Oh, yeah. You know what else we could have? Jesus. What else do we need? And what, what is it that we need? Christ. And we need the Spirit of God. We need to be people who are identified by the fruit of the Spirit and not by the casting of our vote. We need to be people who are known by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. And not by our division. The church in Laodicea, they thought they were cool. They thought they had everything figured out. They didn't need a single thing. And, and, and it just reinforces that point. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. So they thought they were good, but yet the message from Jesus is, oh, you're not good. You see, the conflict that they're in the middle of is this. It's between what they think they are and what they really are. This is what Jesus is bringing to them, the conflict. He says there, there's, there's a tension, there's a conflict between what they think they are and what they really are. Also, between what they see and what Jesus sees. And between the wealth and affluence of their city and their own spiritual bankruptcy. Back to our passage, verse 17. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Notice everything that the city was well known for. Jesus is speaking against them because they were seeing things as they are, and yet Jesus sees them as they really are. And now what does Jesus say to, about the church there? He says, you do not realize that you are wretched. They thought they were good, pitiful. They thought they were the it city. Poor. They thought they were rich, blind. Man, they thought they had the cure for blindness with the eye salve and naked. Oh, they thought they were all good because they had that localized black wool that they were going to be all taken care of. As long as they had that, they had this, this influx of money coming in the city. They're going to be all good. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're not good. There's really nothing good about you. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear. Notice that he, he chooses white clothes and not black clothes because black clothes would verify the idol that existed in the city with the black wool. He says, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. And now we get into the to the promise, the close of the message. The church promises this. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Verse 19. 
Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. The word rebuke is the Greek word elanko, and it means to reprove, expose, or convict. Similarly, this is what Jesus said that the, that the Spirit would do in John 16, verse 8. Jesus said this, When he, the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Also, Paul used similar wording when Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, and he's giving this charge to Timothy, and he says this. He says, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths but you keep your head in all situations endure hardship and do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all of the duties of your ministry. The idea of discipline is something that the author of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 12, 10 and 11. This is what it says. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness, and those discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. We may look at at this passage and say, wow, this is just a, a scornful rebuke, and it is. But did you see the grace of God in this passage also? Did you see the fact that Jesus is actually writing a letter to this church, and he didn't just let the church disband and go away? He's actually giving them an opportunity to repent. In verse 19, he says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Surely there were some in the church who were, who were doing the right thing, that, that loved God and that he was loving them. And for them, he says, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. You see, church, when we run across passages like this, the best thing that we can do is to stop and observe. And we all feel the tension in the room. We feel it. We feel this this tension of, where am I in the middle of all this? And that's a good tension. Because if you didn't feel the tension, if you were just indifferent to this whole talk, you, by definition, would be lukewarm. So I want to encourage you, if you feel that tension, God is speaking to you. What is that act of obedience that that God is impressing upon you right now? What is the thing that God has been speaking to you about already, maybe for weeks or months or days, and you've simply ignored? Be earnest. Be faithful. And repent. This is the way forward. 
the way forward for us as individuals, the way forward for us as a church is to retreat from our former way of life and to repent and then start the new way, the way that God has for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today. Lord, we are getting ready to take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross. And Lord, the taking the elements of communion are, are a time of celebration. They are certainly a time of pause. Because if we're living perpetually disobedient lives, we're disconnected from you, stubbornly resisting you, we're apathetic, we're willing to compromise the truth, we're complacent in our walk, then we pause for a moment and you give us an opportunity to repent, to get back on track. So Jesus, you have brought all of these letters and all of the messages and all the incredible illustrations and truths about yourself and about us and about them. And Lord, we know that you are the faithful and true. You're faithful in coming to earth in the first place as a helpless child. Faithful in, in, in living a perfect life. Faithful to endure the mocking, the criticism, bearing the weight of our sin. Embracing a crown of thorns. The shedding of your own blood. on a rugged and wicked cross. And Lord, we reap the reward of your faithfulness. Help us as we go forward, as we now take the elements, to pause for a moment. Allow the Spirit of God to examine us, to see if we are of the faithful and true, or if we're not. Thank you, Jesus.